Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is John Robb. John is a returning guest. He's our go-to guy on military stuff, intelligence stuff, and strategic stuff. Guess what we're going to talk about today? Ukraine, with quite a bit of all the above. And oh, by the way, those who want to know more about John and his thinking, check him out on Patreon. John Robb at Patreon. I've been a subscriber since I think he put the damn thing up. It's been well worth the five bucks a month or whatever the hell it is I pay him. So uh, you want to hear more from John? Check him out. All right, John, welcome back. Oh, thank you. One thing I'd like to do is, well, after we do a brief update on current status, I'd like to back up a little bit and try to be more forward looking than backward looking if we could. Okay. You know, a lot of people suggest that I ask you questions about how do we get into this mess? What could we have done differently? Uh, Truth of the matter is that's in the past. There's a reason we call it the past. And while we can learn some lessons from the past, I think uh, it's uh, much more uh, interesting to think about the future. Right. Uh, And I'm going to throw this out to you. Tell me what you think. But I believe that this event is a major hinge of history uh, that we can I think, reasonably say that uh, this is the door closing on the post-Cold War world and something new will come into being. Yeah, I I agree with that. So history has restarted again. So take the Fukuyama quote and reverse it and say, okay, there are major trends underway right now, uh, major changes in history that are occurring. And, um, you know, history, that great engine is, is moving forward. There isn't just one system want to kind of heat death <laughs> of humanity uh, in place anymore. Exactly. And uh, you know, as I like to say, that at these cusps, the degrees of freedom and system evolution tend to be a lot higher, right? Uh, the old assumptions, the old rigidities are in play. And you know where we may go is quite a bit less predictable than it was, say, in uh, uh, you know, 19, the difference between 1996 and 1997, not that big. Uh, you know, the difference between 2001 and 2002, pretty big. Uh, I suspect that the differences here will be much larger than the differences uh, between 2000 and, 2001 and 2002, that this is a much more significant change in the unfolding of our world. And I'd like to, you know, as much as we can, talk about that as opposed to, uh, you know, the details of how we got here and, and what have you. Yeah, it's definitely unstuck. And uh, when things get unstuck like this, a lot of things can happen that uh, normally wouldn't happen. You know, the Quentin Tarantino thesis behind all his movies is that you have this system of laws, keeps everyone intact. And then once you move outside of that, everything can go chaotic. And we're in this chaotic zone, you know, now that we've all departed that uh, safety and security of, of 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 a legal system that locks everything down. And um, last weekend, I was talking with some really smart people about national defense stuff and uh, predicting in, you know, what would happen in, in the following week. And we were thinking, OK, Ukraine's going to be invaded. Uh, what does that do? And the thing we glommed onto almost immediately was that uh, it, it's basically a green light for China to go after Taiwan. 
is that uh, this demonstrates that Pax Americana is over uh, and that uh, the U.S. really doesn't have any cards to play um, and that there are enough, there are a sufficient number of countries that would actually not comply with any kind of embargo. Like we're already seeing with Russia, you know, China's already said that they won't comply with any embargo of Russia and that um, India said that they uh, would play nice with Russia. And there's lots of other countries willing to do the same. So our systemic kind of response to aggression is over. Yeah. And I think it's important to underline this is that uh, there had been, you know, since World War II, a very strong international consensus is that cross-border invasions must not stand. Uh, now, of course, there's been a few exceptions, but uh, think about Iraq one, uh, you know, much smaller scale. Iraq grabs Kuwait by invasion and the whole world rallied, including the Russians actually supported us on that. And we put together a big coalition and uh, crunched the Iraqis in four days and, uh, you know, underline, put an underline under the fact that cross-border invasions will not be tolerated. Of course, there's lots of gray zones about internal stuff, you know, like the Rwandians uh, meddling in the civil wars of the Congo, etc. cetera. Uh, but in terms of cross-border invasions to grab land, et cetera, uh, that was a, uh, a big no-no, though, of course, it's also worth uh, considering that the U.S. violated uh, those uh, rules twice in relatively recent memory. Uh, first, you know, basically working with the Kosovo, Kosovo uh, to pry it loose from uh, Serbia. And, you know, we actually kicked the shit out of Serbia. You know, people don't, aren't quite aware how intense uh, the NATO attack on Serbia was, but it was uh, almost all from the air, but it was... Uh, quite powerful. And then, of course, the other one of the you know the great debacle in American strategic history was the uh, attack on Iraq in 2003, where at least we, we did have the, the the fig leaf color of law in that uh, the first Iraq War ended with an armistice rather than a peace treaty. And it is true, Hussein was in violation of the armistice in many points, and so the Allies were legally within their power to uh, you know move on Iraq and engage in regime change, which they did, but turned out to be not very wise and at least partially broke down the taboo against doing that. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, our kind of horror of what you know, Russia is doing to Ukraine um, is similar to what a lot of people felt when we were going into Iraq. You know, and it, it didn't seem justified enough. It seemed like it was made up, proved to be largely made up um, as a reason for going to war. And um, it's important to remember, though, that these you know, the big countries, Russia, China, and the U.S. Um, in particular, have a different rule set than everybody else. I mean, they have nukes. And, and Russia in particular has more nukes than any other country in the world and has about, I think, about 18 times as many nukes as China. So, I mean, it is in a special space. You can't challenge them physically. Um, there's not any rational reason anyone would want to put U.S. and Russian troops in conventional engagement. I mean, you just it would be too much of a, a worry that would trigger a nuclear confrontation. Yeah, the thing that was interesting to me, you know, about this conflict is that it uh, it kind of uh, it gives us a really good insight into what is going to happen in the future in regards to uh, where China and Russia are going. Both have seen networking and rapid technological change in this globalization set in motion a lot of chaotic impulses and, and a lot of uh, problems uh, internally. And uh, they saw, yeah, you know, they've been watching what's happening in the U.S and our internal strife as a result of these disruptions. And um, to combat that, uh, 
I don't know if it was explicit on, on Putin's part, but it's definitely explicit on the Chinese part with Wang Hening's work, is that they have created a kind of a master narrative, which is very similar to what we saw in the Cold War, but it, but it reaches back in history. It, 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 it fixes kind of a moral compass for them. Um, and a, it's an animating narrative that allows them to maintain cohesion. And they use networking and other controls to kind of keep people within that box. And th their thinking is that that will allow them to uh, continue to stay cohesive in a, in a disruptive kind of amorphous world that, that we're in right now, um, while everyone else falls apart. The problem is that that comes at a cost. And in, in Russia's case, that means seeing Ukraine as part of Russia, not seeing their independence as legitimate, and that that all came to the head just recently with you know Ukraine's move to move into NATO. And, you know, that was the thing that would break the narrative, um, the narrative that they have constructed for themselves to stay cohesive. Um, and uh, uh, that moved them to act. And, you know, uh, not understanding or even giving any uh, appreciation to the value of that narrative and how you know, tightly they hold it uh, is one of the big reasons why most of the Western analysts thought that the Russians were just bluffing, that they wouldn't go for it. They wouldn't try to take the whole country. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I I thought it was kind of unlikely they'd go for it all in until I read Putin's speech on the 21st of February. Right. Uh, I hadn't followed it as deeply as, you know, experts did. But uh, I said, hmm, you know, from a a gambler's perspective, uh, it seemed like the smart thing to do was to uh, move some troops into the Donbass enclave, uh, work with the people there to attack the other two provinces that the enclaves were part of, grab those burst out of that, threaten Kiev, and then pull back. Uh, very right. similar to what happened in Georgia. I said, that's the uh, that's almost a perfect play for Putin. And then I read that speech and I go, oh, shit, this dude's yeah. going to go for it. He's going to go for annexation. it. Yeah. yeah, he's going to go for it. I don't, at least he's going to carve it up and maybe leave a, uh, a rump state in the West. But he's going to grab a big part of it. He's certainly going to decapitate the current administration. He's going to go for the capital. All the classic 18th, 19th, and early 20th century ideas about what you do with, with hard power. He's going to go for it. And he did. Yeah. yeah, with those pincher movements coming from the South and the North, one out of Belarus going after Kiev and, and the one from the South coming from the Crimea, um, it looks like he's going for the whole thing. And that the harder that campaign is, the more Russian lives lost in the process equipment. They've lost a couple of brigades worth of infantry fighting vehicles, uh, a little more than a handful of planes. Um, that makes it harder for him to, to just create a puppet state, which had failed before, or even carve off the, the other regions. I think he, the harder it is, the more likely he is to just completely annex it. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's take a pause there. And though we said we're not going to focus on the past or too much on the present, maybe let's let's do take a little uh, update on what you see going on right now and the short term unfolding of the campaign. Well, I I think the timing of the actual operation was opportunistic. Uh, you know, Putin did the build up, and he worked the the, the Western media. He you know, worked perceptions. You know, got his. A rationale out there and waited for a response um, from the West. And he didn't really see anything that would actually hinder his plans. And then he went for it. And, and the initial operation looked like it was an attempt to seize it quickly. You know, a coup de main, you know, sending in a, a, a airborne operation to go take the Kiev, Kiev airport and um, 
turn it into an air bridge and then you know surround the capital and quickly you know, drive it to a uh, uh, conclusion uh, but uh, Ukraine obviously had done a lot more preparation than than anticipated uh, they were a lot better uh, uh, prepared and trained in order to handle the initial phases of the operation and and that long build-up period allowed them to do that um, and some Western support got in there so that failed obviously because the, the airport operation um, was rolled back and now it's into a you know two major pincher movements one is broken into two parts coming out of the, the Belarus on either side of, of Kiev they're fighting in the outskirts some people think that it's going to focus in on a uh, you know house to house kind of urban siege urban urban warfare that probably was more of a World War II kind of viewpoint on things I think now in the modern environment that they uh, the number of people and the rate at which we chew through supplies and 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 how little is actually produced inside of cities um, makes these cities extremely vulnerable be, to being cut off. It's like a it's like packing a fortress full of people, you know, wall to wall, and then expecting it to withstand any any length of siege. It just won't won't happen. Um, it's not stocked. It's not. It doesn't have weeks and weeks and weeks of material to, to burn through. So my guess is that they'll encircle it. If they're any good, they'll, they'll encircle it and then wait for the surrender. And, and possibly spend, send special forces in to try to uh, capture, uh, capture the leadership cadre. Yeah. And if they, if they push in and anticipating everything, you know, that the whole thing will, will fall apart, uh, they could be surprised, but they may not be. I mean, the, the, the flight and the number of people leaving is, is, Good indicator today, you know, after all the bellicose rhetoric of yesterday, uh, is a good indicator that the, a lot of the morale is is, uh, is deteriorating and, and 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 the country is falling apart to a large degree. So, um, yeah, my worry also is that the as the, if the Russians do get bogged down in a couple of their pincher movements that the you know coming mostly from the the, the far eastern part of the country is that they'll they'll use a lot of firepower to unstick them meaning that they'll start flattening things. That's the Russian way. They just flatten towns, you know, flatten areas uh, in order to wipe out the opposition to allow the, 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 the column to continue forward. Um, that'll drive up casualties. Uh, it, it can get very, very brutal. And also there's also uh, people who have confirmed this is that they're uh, Chechen uh, troops who are acting as counterinsurgent forces, you know, operating in behind the Russian uh, lines as they move forward. So basically, those guys are built for brutality and putting things down. So uh, it, it, this this could end up being a you know a very brutal put down. But it, it's I think it, the thinking on this is that it's going to be a decisive put down. There's not going to be there's no holds barred. They want the country. There's nothing going to stop them from doing that. Yeah, it looks like it. You know, it looks you know unless the a miracle occurs. Look at the correlation of forces and the you know very uh, good job from a tactical pr- perspective that the Russians did by fully surrounding uh, Ukraine, force them to you know disperse their uh, resources. And yes, they seem like they're doing a surprisingly good job of stopping the thrust from the east. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, all you have to do is allow a breakthrough from one direction, uh, and you're cooked in this kind of maneuver warfare. And it appears that actually two directions aren't being defended very well. One is out of, out of Crimea, Crimea up, and more significantly, the two thrusts down from the north 
uh, I don't see any sign that uh, Russia won't be able to encircle uh, Kiev here within the next uh, 48 hours, probably at the latest. Yeah, the, the thinking on the, on, the, on the forces coming in from the east is that they're holding forces. So what you do is you advance across a broad front and you hold those forces that are opposing them in place so they can't be repositioned. And, um, and as you start to encircle them, they start to panic. They don't get the communications from the command staff anymore. They don't get the supplies they need because they're burning through it at a rapid rate. And uh, all of a sudden, they just break and run. You know, but they're far from being encircled yet. Uh, it's on that way. But it, it's, um, it looks like they're, the Russians are focused mostly on encircling the big cities and then seeing if they can just force a full capitulation. Yeah, that's an interesting. And you know, I was looking at history. Uh, what are poss- what are some potential uh, tactics and strategies of the Ukrainians? One that kind of comes up. You look at the map. Is hmm, could the Ukrainians fall back to the west? Right, fall back and essentially have a much shorter line, not subject to intrusion from the flanks, uh, and you know, defend the western third of the country uh, for a while while they spin up an insurgency in the rest of the country. I don't see any sign of that happening now. Of course, to do something like that, you had to reposition, you had to preposition uh, logistics support, uh, you know, ammunition, uh, etc. And if they if they weren't prepared to do that, there's no ability to really do that on the fly. Yeah, I mean, I think the bulk of their forces are clearly in the east, um, and uh, you know, east of the Dnieper, and uh, they're going to be stuck there, <laughs> and they're not going to be able to withdraw them, and um, most of the roads to the West are, are clogged with people fleeing, uh, trying to get to the West. I mean, you know, if, if you're a Ukrainian um, and you had the foresight to leave last week and get to the United States, that's the moment you can just say, okay, I want to become a refugee. And then you get the green card forever. Because as long as this, as the, as the country is under Russian control, you get that green card. Just a, I think that's a, a dominant strategy. I think that that same strategy should be used by anyone who see the similar mo- motions in, in play for Taiwan. <laughs> Take a trip, get to the United States, refugee status, stay forever, green card. Yeah, though I do suspect uh, that while this will embolden China, uh, China probably won't move on Taiwan in the short term. Uh, and I think the reason is, is that uh, Russia may well be at its peak relative to power uh, to Europe right now. You know, they've just finished a major modernization and redevelopment of their military doctrines, et cetera. They're quite capable. Uh, their population's only just beginning to decline. Uh, oil and gas are still producing a lot of money. Uh, but uh, the correlation of forces in the years ahead don't look, look so good. China, uh, Russia's population will be dropping rapidly. Oil and gas may become uh, less significant economically. And uh, maybe finally Europe is waking up to the danger here and will start to rearm. Uh, so uh, Russia was under time pressure. This was near the optimal time to do this. China continues to be uh, you know, growing in power, growing in puissance, and I believe their view is that the, the U.S. and the West is is declining. So time is on their side. So there's no real reason to rush it. I'm not so quite sure, sure about that. Is that, um, you know, China is, is definitely retrenching to a large extent because they see the difficulty in, in modernizing once you're modernized or, you know, advancing, advancing quality of life and keeping cohesion um, and that their population continues to decline, even though they um, have released 
you know, people from the burden of a one or two child policy. Um, it's still just falling off like, a, you know, like crazy. Um, that means fewer young men uh, for the military. And those young men that you do have available have, you know, four grandparents. <laughs> you know, it's like everybody, the whole family is focused on that one individual. Um, and that um, they're not going to be really happy about letting them go into the military to fight. Uh, as long as you still have large rural populations, you probably get enough people willing to actually do the fighting. And I don't know how long that's going to persist. So, I, you know, I do think also that China's opportunistic is that they see this kind of break in the system. It's it's fluid right now uh, that the any kind of pressure that they put on Russia will diminish from any pressure they can put on China. Um, and that if they take Taiwan and, and both, you know, there's this kind of a fascist kind of a biology metaphor that both of them are using is that, you know, both Russia and China are using is that you want to accumulate all the pieces of your body that were lost and become a cohesive whole. And, and any piece that's not functioning correctly, you, you reform it and bring it back into cultural alignment, like they're doing with the Muslims and the Uyghurs, you know, forcing them to renounce Islam. And then you're doing with Hong Kong, forcing them into the kind of cultural framework. And then now with Taiwan, uh, it will do the same. And um, the big trump card they have in that is if they take Taiwan, then they have Taiwan Semiconductor. And they say, oh, basically to the West, if you help Taiwan or impede this operation, that will impede the time to get Taiwan Semiconductor back in producing. Because they produce half of all the world's chips, 80% of the world's advanced chips, um, they're starting to diversify, but it's going to take a long time to do that. Um, so basically, they hold the world hostage and say, okay, if if you resist us on this, it's going to take longer. Yeah. Oh, you, and by the way, those uh, semiconductor plants are sitting ducks for ballistic missiles, right? Right. Very, very soft targets. And, 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 and what they're telling the, the heads of these companies and, and the companies in Taiwan is that don't resist us. We just change the government and... You can do business just like you did before, hundred percent. Of course, you'll be back true, in production. But... Yeah, I know. A couple of years later, those guys disappear, obviously. But it, uh, uh, but that's that's the line initially is that your families can still control the, the companies that you you currently own. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that soft uh, uh, network warfare uh, is sufficient to break the will of the Taiwanese. But let's go back to Ukraine here now. So, uh, and back to the evolution of this uh, conflict. So. Are you uh, comfortable with the assumption that probably uh, Russians win a decisive victory here in you know less than two weeks, probably, uh, and is able to, are able to establish a puppet government at a minimum, perhaps uh, uh, annex parts of it, uh, etc. Uh, does that seem like a reasonable scenario to you? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, it was certainly more costly on the first day. Uh, you know, it's also teething pains for for them to operate the kind of you know big military operation that they're they're running here. Um, yeah, the inevitable frictions of war, Clausewitz, right? Uh, uh, someone would say, "Well, they didn't launch all their at attacks at exactly the same time." I said, "Frankly, the uh, the fronts are so separate; it doesn't matter. There's no interior lines, uh, the ability to switch forces between one front and the other. So they're off by a couple hours; doesn't matter. And frictions of war, shit happens, right? Uh, so uh, it seems to me the Russians are going to win. So let's say they do. Let's take the scenario: Russians total victory in less than two weeks." Then the next big, big question is, will a modern society uh, be willing to go into active insurgency? 
Yeah, I think that's tough. And and one of the things I'm um, I'm working through, and Jordan Hall was working through the same thing. And and you know, and I've been doing it for years on this whole idea of kind of the virtuals and the physicals was a, the, the most current framework of that. I have all these like you know network tribes that I I've kind of been defining. Is that um, the virtuals tend not to be willing to fight physically, and you know we saw that to a certain extent in 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 Afghanistan. I mean, you had a population that doubled in 20 years, and it was a lot of young people who grew up with a lot of USAID pouring in, and they did a lot of stuff online, and um, they were doing a lot of actualization of their <laughs> potential, and 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 the like uh, through online and the like. And and uh, when it came to actually fighting, there was lots of people complaining. You know, I'm not going to have my future. I'm not going to be able to do this or that. But far fewer people actually willing to actually you know fight the Taliban. It's not like the Taliban were an overwhelming force. It's just that there weren't enough of the people, the vast number of people who were um, in the cities willing to fight to defend the city or defend the country. Um, and we're seeing that to a certain extent with, with Ukraine. You see these young guys packing trains going west, trying to emigrate, trying to get out in interviews with, with, with young guys who, you know, they're all a fighting age and, and young women who are a fighting age who aren't willing to actually stay there and do the, the, the hard physical stuff. And um, it does kind of point to maybe have a long-term problem in the U S is that if we become too much on, you know, if the country tilts too far towards the virtual side uh, that there is a vulnerability to a Taliban like insurgency, not, you know, necessarily religious, but it becomes more and more vulnerable to that. It's just that the guys with guns won't be opposed. There'll be a lot of people squawking online and a lot of people complaining about it and saying how terrible is it, but they, they're not the ones that are willing to go out there and do the fighting. It's they're asking other people to go out and do the fighting for them. Yeah. And, and, and it may not, it may not it be just the physical versus virtual. I'd suggest that it goes back long before virtual even existed. Uh, if you look at uh, where were the uh, insurgencies against the Nazis, for instance, uh, well, yeah, there was a little bit of uh, token resistance in France. There really wasn't very much, uh, very little anywhere else in the West. But on the other hand, uh, in the, at that time, still very pre-modern Yugoslavia and Ukraine, uh, there was bloody, intense uh, insurgencies. There were 20 SS divisions in in Yugoslavia trying to hold down the partisans there. Uh, and, and, if, and if we look at Iraq, uh, that was a uh, still, even though relatively wealthy, still a pre-modern society, tribal, literally in many ways. And there was a, you know quite virulent uh, insurgencies there, various of them fighting amongst each other as well, as we know. And Afghanistan, I would argue the Taliban are an insurgency. And again, a- Afghanistan is a significantly pre-modern country to this day. And so uh, I would suggest physical versus virtual might be less significant than modern versus pre-modern. Pre-modern people are still willing to fight. Uh, maybe modern people are not willing to take on uh, the difficulty, particularly of a civil insurgency. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at it more like a um, a continuum, that modernity actually becomes more and more abstract, and 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 we're at a kind of level of hyper abstraction right now, um, where most of our conversations are taking place. Um, I mean, the whole mimetic cycles and and how we talk now is 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 all in abstractions, um, and that there's this long tail of people who haven't migrated into that. Um, and there's still, you know, 
working in the physical world and or balancing the two. Um, it's a it may be a, you know, more of a function of, of you know just this rapid technological advancement and this kind of you know like when 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 a physical object approaches a black hole and it gets stretched out <laughs> to an atom thick you know it's just one long line of atoms well it's or uh, molecules it's like that it's a we have this kind of continuum of people that are getting stretched out and to kind of basket them is is tough but um, there is a I, I do think there is a strong aversion to to doing things physically for a lot of people in the, in, in the virtual space. Uh, you won't even leave their house. Yeah. And yeah, again, language, language that our friend Jordan Hall tends to use, the Boudreaudian simulation. They're deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And I think it's bad now. Wait till a whole generation grows up in the metaverse. Ah! <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, I wrote a thing on that uh, a couple months ago called the virtual middle class and that that would actually be the solution set that will be kind of imposed on us for climate change. So yeah, that's Mark Andreessen. Yeah, Mark Andreessen, you know, and that whole bunch I call neo-feudalists. Uh, he basically says, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, they may uh, have a job as a delivery boy for their local uh, Chinese restaurant, but they have a palace and a, and a Lamborghini in, in, uh, in the metaverse, and so they're satisfied, right? Uh, fairly bad, in my view, but that uh, that is potentially a, uh, a road forward. Well, let's go back to Ukraine now. Let's take you know pull the we talked about insurgency, uh, even though it's been part of the stated American strategy. I think I'm with you. It's going to be hard for modern people uh, to uh, take the step and engage in a uh, real insurgency, where especially like you point out, Chechens enforcing the uh, the local order are going to take you out and pull your fingernails out and you know uh, you know skin your wife alive in front of you and things like that. Uh, modern folks probably don't have what it takes to fight against that. Uh, so let's assume the insurgency doesn't really happen either, and Russia is able to. Uh, part either completely absorb or partially absorb and turn into a puppet state, Ukraine. Uh, what happens next? Well, then they'll focus on what they have to acquire next. <laughs> Belarus, probably more on a peaceful side, um, a kind of peaceful acquisition. Um, I'm not sure they're going to actually touch any of the stands. Those are kind of of low value, and they're not from the long historical perspective part of Russia. Um, Maybe Kazakhstan because of the oil. Yeah, they had their opportunity. They, yeah, they came and went real quick there. So they seem to be happy as long as they have a somewhat uh, uh, friendly state in Kazakhstan. They don't seem to feel any need to grab it. But of course, where the rubber really meets the road is in the Baltics, right? Here we have th three small countries, uh, two of which have substantial Russian minorities. Uh, they don't have a land connection to. Do they have a land connection to Poland? Yeah, they do. Uh, there is a there is a uh, land connection between Lithuania and Poland. Uh, tiny, tiny little countries. The Russians have owned them on and off at various times, uh, and uh, that, and yet they're full members of NATO, right? So uh, that's uh, the difference. Yeah, that's that's the key thing is that uh, they don't want to trigger NATO, and because that will get U.S. troops and European troops in place, and 
you know, um, the whole idea of having U.S. troops in Europe really wasn't so much on defending Europe. It was more to act as a trigger for nuclear yeah. weapons. Tripwire strategy, be- right? That, right. Uh, yeah, if they came over and uh, and launched into into with our you know fifty thousand or one hundred thousand troops in Europe, we have to do something. And uh, you know, while we may be slow to arise our anger, you really don't want to piss the U.S. off for, for a long term conventional war because uh, we're pretty good at that. Right. If you lose enough troops or you lose that carrier battle group that's defending or in the Taiwan Straits, that should be sufficient to be a trigger to initiate the use of nuclear weapons, maybe at a tactical level. But that would then spiral out of control and cause everything to you know, blow up. Is or, that, alter- um, or, or alternatively, you know, we, we gear up to World War II level and just fight a fucking conventional war and uh, eventually grind them down. Yeah, I just don't. Um, everyone, would, I think rightly so has been too scared to actually go down that road is that we've, we've kind of convinced ourselves in order to, you know, to justify the spending on conventional weapons that we do spend, uh, that that could be potentially a scenario. Um, but I'm, I'm with Ike, <laughs> you know, it, 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 if we followed Ike's strategy, we would have saved probably, you know, $20 trillion over the years on, on defense spending is that, um, if you go towards a conventional conflict between superpowers that have nuclear weapons, it's a, a no win. The chances of, of blowing up the planet and losing everything is, is too high. And um, both sides know that, you know, that's speaking well of humanity um, and that, that we've stayed away from it in the past. So, um, yeah, I, I don't see U.S. troops engaging. I, I do think, though, that the Russians will drive hot insurgencies, potentially, um, a lot of little green men in the Baltics. Uh, but I don't think that's actually going to avail them of much. Uh, so, hot invasion, no. Okay, so you've sent, so let's say we, and I, and I agree with you. Clearly, the soft absorption of Belarus has been going on for a long while, right? They actually have a treaty which has a soft union, and uh, with uh, Putin having bailed out the Belarusian dictator just last year, uh, leverage has increased. Now, well, guess what? A bunch of Russian troops are there now too, which actually is new. There weren't any Russian troops there till recently. Uh, so let's assume they assume Belarus and Ukraine either directly or through as puppet status. So now we have a Russian frontier. Uh, effective frontier uh, with NATO all the way from the Black Sea, uh, you know, on up. Uh, uh, then what happens? I've seen some conversation online that the Finns are uh, now seriously considering applying for NATO membership. Uh, and Sweden, uh, at least there's the beginnings of a conversation uh, that Sweden uh, may feel that the time is right to uh, apply for NATO membership, both of which have you know, Finland's case, it was kind of enforced neutrality as a uh, a winking and nodding deal with the Russians. The Russians would leave them alone during the Cold War in return for uh, relatively subservient neutrality. Uh, But, you know, seems reasonable that uh, with the world divided again to a new equivalent of a Cold War, something not the same as, but something analogous to, might make sense for Finland in particular to flip and become formally aligned with with the West. Yeah, I agree. there's a, also, there's a, uh, since both countries, both Russia and China are all completely run or run uh, by absolute dictators, um, people who have big egos and, and, and Putin certainly has a man, you know, a massive ego. He's purportedly the richest man in the world, given his ownership, um, of Russian interests, maybe less so today, but, uh, he was just recently and that, you know, he, 
that achievement mindset, the hyper achievement mindset. Sometimes it's like, okay, I check off that. I've become so wealthy. Now I'm going to restore Russia to its historical borders. And that's a, you know, a legacy issue. And, and I see Z to a certain extent, you know, kind of pushing in that direction that I'm going to restore the historical you know, borders of the Chinese people is that uh, there's a, there is a kind of a, a legacy achievement drive. Uh, you know, I'm going to die. And when I die, I want to have the guy who is credited with restoring Russia and restoring. Yeah, and, yeah that was when China. I read uh, Putin's speech of the 21st of February. I said, fuck. Right. Uh, you know, he really, if, you know, and the speech was actually very well written. I mean, I couldn't imagine a, a recent U.S. president, certainly not the current incumbent, uh, uh, even reading such a speech and getting to the end because it was quite detailed, quite analytical, and it laid out a theory of all the harms that have been done to Russia uh, all the way, way the hell back and all of our triumphs, all of our wonderfulness. And yeah, he's going to add himself to the canon of Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great and, and Catherine the Great. It'll be Vladimir the Great. Uh, the- oh, yeah. And there's a huge, huge component of ego in this is that you know, you're comparing yourself to historical figures. You have a historical narrative um, and that you want to achieve that. You want to that. How do you transcend time is you become historical figure and uh, rather than just a you know asterisk oh here's a president right it's like well, here's right, a- okay. okay so now let's let's take the next step right we, there was another guy like this good old adolf right who initially was talking about uh you know reunifying the right uh, but guess what it got out of control this is the producer speaking in this last short stretch of the episode jim ran into some audio issues and had to switch to a different microphone the quality will be a bit lower so let me rewind to right where we were, which was, okay, we're a year or two from now. Russia has won in Ukraine, uh, probably per our best guess. Uh, no major insurgency, no highly kinetic hot insurgency is underway. Uh, they've absorbed Belarus either directly or uh, in a very strong puppet fashion. Let's say Finland has joined NATO, maybe Sweden too. Uh Probably NATO's woken up. But anyway, where are we? What's the world look like uh, once we're at that point? Well, um, we'll have uh, we'll have Russia running probably insurgencies into the Baltics. But I, I don't see them as, as as critical to kind of restoring kind of this Russian heritage. Um, and that um, we're going to see, you know, China and Russia that I think I do think that China will go after the Taiwan. So it's, it's the combination of the two would be kind of a China and Russia as a, you know, bulwark against U.S. power in Pax Americana. I mean, keep it shattered. Um, and that uh, that's going to have repercussions in terms of, uh, you know, the U.S.'s ability to cut agreements and, and get things done around the world. Now, what do you think about the reaction from our allies? Will this change of events uh, produce more coherence within NATO or less? Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, uh, it, they're still relying on Russia for energy. And Ukraine has, you know, foodstuffs and other things that they supply them and, and minerals. So, um, you know, I'm not, um, you know, if, if this ends quickly, you know, it, within a year or two, uh, the appetite for sanctions and continued hostility with Russia is going to diminish um, there'll be all sorts of carve-outs for different industries. I mean, Belgium was even trying to get initial car- carve-out for uh, diamond trading with Russia. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, everyone's going to want carve-outs. 
Um, and uh, with the big guys outside of that treaty or outside of that kind of uh, sanctions regime, um, you know, China and India in particular, uh, I don't see it uh, holding over the long term. I mean, the U.S. might be the only one left holding it uh, together. And um, it'll be back to business as usual, you know, without the Ukraine, without Taiwan. Yeah, with Finland aligned with uh, NATO. Uh, yeah. And, and then probably, but some, I would imagine, increase in defense spending by the NATO allies, Germany and France, particularly Germany, who's been the big laggard, still down at like 1.2% of GDP. Yeah, I'm not going to, I don't think that's going to increase much. Um, if they don't feel directly threatened, um, they're just indirectly threatened. I don't think it's going to change how much they actually spend on defense. And um, they're suffering, you know, heavy duty uh, population loss right now across the board in all the countries I mean, in terms of, you know, birth rates are, are way down. Um, and uh, fewer and fewer people actually want to even get involved in the military and, and do anything, you know, associated with it. And so, um, you know, they have other priorities. I mean, um, they're, you know, they're like, running into the same problems everybody else is running into in terms of, you know, it's hard to maintain cohesion in the, in the face of uh, this kind of network chaos that everyone's facing. Um, I do think that Russia and China, as they start to fully develop and they take over those near territories, their ambitions will change and they'll start to focus more on influencing and, and uh, abroad and, and extending their influence. Um, and it will be, uh, you know, a pretty aggressive posture. So, uh, so that will look more like a real Cold War, where it was essentially ideological, uh, yeah. not just national interest. Yeah. I mean, w will it get back to spheres of influence we had, you know, prior to the Cold War, like the great powers kind of spheres of influence? You know, um, will that be carved out? Will that be kind of institutionalized? I don't know. Um, but, it, you know, they're going to focus more on, on becoming um, more uh dictatorial in terms of how they treat their uh, internal populations in order to kind of lock down dissent and, and stop it from um, causing them the kind of chaos they're seeing here. And I don't see the U.S. getting more stable over time. So, uh, you know, in four or five years, we could become even more unstable as a result of divisions and uh, internal fights. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't see any kind of attractor. Inside the United States, it brings people together and gets us to, to act as a more cohesive unit. So, uh, it, you know, if they're if Z and Putin both see us as, as a, a power in decline, um, that decline, and if they're right, that decline will continue in the next four or five years. And um, I don't really have anything I can say to gainsay them or to, to kind of contradict them on that. And so that uh, over the say five-year time horizon. Uh, China and Russia will both be flexing their muscles, uh, proving where they can, grabbing what they can, building more oppressive even uh, regimes internally, something like that. Right. Uh, it, their, th their, their thinking is that uh, to the cohesive go the spoils, right? So um, if they can maintain their cohesion, they can continue to increase their influence and their um, economic and, and military might. Um, and that if the U.S. Uh, starts, continues to lose cohesion, uh, it's going to find itself more and more absorbed in, in internal conflicts to the exclusion of all else. Um, and, you, you, you know, you're already seeing the kind of DOD shift to, you know, uh, 
internal counterinsurgency and and uh, uh, different, you know, the focus on on uh, extremist uh, terror and the like. And even though the numbers, like from the ADL and the, uh, you know, who certainly not biased in this regard, show that uh, domestic extremist killings are down below they were where they were in 2013. So I mean, they're at the lowest level in, in re- at least our uh, recent history. Yet there's this ramp up to go after a, a, what they consider domestic extremists. Um, and that the uh, domestic extremists are now, you know, if, if the Canadian trucker example plays out is that they're focusing more on the systems disruption, which, you know, it hurts the kind of networked, you know, connected economy and, and people who are relying on those uh, deliveries to, to maintain their isolated existence going on. Um, uh, makes them very vulnerable and they're very vulnerable to that. And, uh, that can cause, uh, lots of disruptions and chaos in the future. So if they keep on moving towards systems disruption, um, that's a bad sign. Okay. Now, what about now China has institutionalized its tyranny though, uh, with uh, Xi, uh, the institutionalization is turning more towards, uh, you know, one person power, but Russia, the uh, tyranny is not really well institutionalized. It's, uh, you know, around a cult of personality and a group of self-serving oligarchs, et cetera. Uh, what, do you, what do you see as uh, the trajectory for Russia going forward? Yeah, Russia's model is, is, is different than the Chinese in that um, a lot of the connections that uh, keep Putin in power are behind the scenes. It's the cross-ownership it's the corruption and behind the scenes that allows him to become the richest guy um, and that they keep this tight ruling group and, and, and their companies and, and um, everyone's financial interests in this kind of tight ball um, that the rest of the country doesn't necessarily participate in. Um, you know, that's their basis for continuing the rule. They're the biggest piece in, you know, biggest cohesive piece inside the country and that they focus most of their efforts um, instead of locking everyone down to a very specific way of viewing the, the world like China is doing, uh, you know, very strict morality, you know, based on Confucianism, based on historical patterns and, and that they want to reinforce. Uh, in, in Russia, it's more about disrupting everybody who's outside of that circle. So um, you'll have protests, but then you'll have counter protests and then you'll you'll try to fork those existing protests and you'll try to create that kind of chaos even inside the country uh, to prevent anyone else from successfully challenging. Um, and, um, you know, that's a it's a different kind of model, uh, I guess, that maybe reflects more kind of the Russian historical progression. Um, but it's, you know, using networking in a, in a different way in terms of how they rule. Okay. Well, so it sounds like, you, know, you don't sound too optimistic about uh, the correlation of forces over the uh, short to medium term. Yeah, I mean, I, I see some countries being vulnerable uh, who are in the crosshair, crosshairs right now. Um, big question is whether or not this will be a green light for uh, foreign adventures by Russia and China. And you know, I don't see that in the short term, though, you know, it could be a, a, something that we'll see more often if the U.S. continues to prove uh, impotent in, in the face of, uh, uh, of this kind of uh, new muscular kind of stance on, on uh, China and Russia's part. Um, so uh, maybe resource grabs. I don't know if it would be in the Middle East or maybe in Africa, uh, but, um, you know, that could be in the five to ten your horizon.
Alrighty, John. Well, I think we're going to wrap it there. Good tour of the horizon of what's going on in Ukraine today in the short term, what may happen in the medium term, what that may mean in terms of a new boundary, essentially, between uh, Russia and NATO, but probably no nuclear war. I guess that's a that's something to be said for it, at least. Yeah, I think I think people still are acting in a restrained fashion with enough restraint to, to kind of avoid that. There's still a lot of people out there that don't understand the basics of, of, of operating with, within a nuclear constraint. Uh, you know, they talk about conventional war and, and you know, adventures that, that shouldn't happen because they could serve as triggers for nuclear war. All right. Well, wrap up there. I'd like to thank you for your astute analysis as always. All right. Thanks, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.